Often when we learn about or work with math, it's done so in a very detached style. You might learn the rules or techniques of differentiation, for example, but how often do you get to apply them to meaningful and interesting problems? In this episode, we have Vincent Knight and Grant Palmer on to discuss a wide variety of applied and approachable math problems using Python. Whether you're deeply into math or not so much, I think there's a lot to enjoy from this episode. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 372, recorded June 29th, 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Compiler from Red Hat. Listen to an episode of their podcast to demystify the tech industry over at talkpython.fm slash compiler, as well as the Python at Scale Summit Conference being held in October. Reconnect with your data science colleagues this year at talkpython.fm slash python at scale. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Transcripts for this and all of our episodes are brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm slash assemblyai. A quick announcement before we jump into the show. You probably know about our video courses. I'm super proud of them, and they are a fantastic educational resource for many people. But sometimes you can benefit from a more hands-on, group-based approach. That's why I'm running another online cohort course. This one will cover fast API async Python programming, and MongoDB. However, the structure is different this time around. This course will be taught 100% live in person. You'll attend over Zoom, and all the sessions will include myself as an instructor and your fellow students. It runs from August 8th to August 19th. If that sounds interesting, please check out the link in your podcast player show notes or on the episode page. And if your company offers educational credits or training reimbursements, you should be able to expense this course as well as our regular TalkPython courses. I'll put some links to templates that you can use to help with that in the show notes as well. Vince Grant, welcome to TalkPython to me. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Vince, I guess it's welcome back for you, right? Yeah, I was on the show a while ago. And, uh, you know, big listener, love the show. Yeah, came back, came here a long time ago to discuss a... Uh, one of the one of the game theoretic libraries I, I work on. So yeah, thanks for having me again. <laughs> yeah, you bet. I love game theory. It's amazing. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit. We're going to do kind of a, a survey of a bunch of different areas of applied math and how Python and compare that with how R might solve those problems, some of the libraries involved, some of the techniques involved. So Lots of fun things. I'm looking forward to diving them awesome. into them with you. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. But before we do, maybe we'll kick it off with Garant. You're new. Tell people quickly about how you got into programming, Python, math. How'd you end up here on this show? So I'm a lecturer at Cardiff University in the School of Mathematics. So I learned to program and while I was doing my PhD. Uh, Vince here was actually my PhD supervisor. So I essentially learned 
programming from Vince during that time. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And during my PhD, I sort of realized, or I learned that everything that we'd been able to learn during my like masters and stuff, it was all completely doable in open source software. And that's kind of where I focused mm -hmm. my, it's kind of where I focused my PhD on then. I sort of, one of my main projects during my PhD was building a library to be able to do some of this stuff. And then, yeah, I, I passed then my PhD. Nice. So what general area was your, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what general area was your PhD in? I know Matt, but what, speci what specifically? Discrete event simulation was where I specialized in my PhD, but like in conjunction with that, some of the other techniques, stuff like Markov chains and queuing theory, which all sort of different mm -hmm. ways of solving the same sort of problem. And that's where I sort of specialized in. Fun. Yeah, very, very cool. We have a running running joke with Garrett that one of his subtopics in his PhD that he became hyper-specialized in as PhDs go was is deadlock. And so it's there's a tweet came up about a question about deadlock and all these jokes that come up. And we got very excited. Well, I got very excited. Like, Garrett, someone's joking about your work. <laughs> That's fantastic. Vince, you've already told your story. Maybe uh, just a quick update. What have you been up to in the last couple of years? Yeah, so the last couple of years, having the pleasure of working with Garrett now, and now that he's a, a colleague of mine, um, but otherwise continuing my work on, on the actual library, which is the, the library we, we were chatting about just, just now. And yeah, I'm still a mathematician at, at Cardiff, where the, the best part of my job is getting to teach people how to, how to program. And that's, I think mathematics is such a cool subject, but in a way, you're only ever a theoretical mathematician until you can program the stuff you're, you're doing. Even the applied yeah, stuff is quite theoretic. And then it's once you can code these things that are so powerful, it really kind of releases the, ma the magic of mathematics from what of a less cringy type of, of way of saying it. So, so that's kind of what I really enjoy doing. And what I keep doing, kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're kind of touch on a bunch of different manifestations yeah. of that, basically. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I want to put out a quick disclaimer. We're going to be talking about math things, obviously Python things as well on the Python show here. The disclaimer is I have some degrees in math, but I have not done anything with them for 20 years. <laughs> and therefore... I know just enough to ask bad questions and make poor assumptions. So you're all going to have to keep me on track and, and just tell me, no, 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 Michael, you were totally misremembering that from your courses 20 years ago. The real you, problem is we that, might so. just be on just the other side of that boundary where we could confidently <laughs> give you bad answers. That's the... Perfect. <laughs> Asking Look, bad if you questions say it confidently, is fine. I'm sure it, yeah, it's give it confidently giving bad answers is the problem. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, cool. Well, let's kick this off by just talking about what is applied mathematics. Because one of the final courses I took... It very much confused me, right. both in the content and just purely in its title. Uh, this this was a course at UCSD in the PhD program there. And the course was titled Applied Abstract Algebra. Right. Like, well, <laughs> is it abstract <laughs> or is it applied? Because I really don't. I just, so yeah. let's just start out with, we're going to be talking about solving applied math problems. Like what the heck is applied math versus like, what am I doing in a calculus class where I'm solving a bunch of like formulaic type of problems versus real analysis where I'm chaining theories to derive new ideas, or maybe it's uh, numerical analysis or stats. Like what, yeah. where are we in the math world? Yeah. Um, I think applied mathematics is, is an interesting kind of like term because in a way it's become a, it's come destroyed from its meaning in a lot of cases in that there's a whole area of applied mathematics as a subfield of mathematics. That's not necessarily applied in any realistic sense. I don't know what you think. 
get. Yeah, yeah. So I think traditionally what applied mathematics was when I was doing my undergrad was these sort of physics models where they assume no gravity and they assume no friction and stuff like that, which doesn't seem very realistic to me at all. Yeah. Whereas when me and Vince have been talking about applied mathematics, um, sometimes that goes under another name called operational research or operations research, but we call it applied mathematics because we're applying various techniques in mathematics to a, a situation, a real situation. Right. I do think not necessarily by definition, but just in general, different techniques are applied to the more physics-y problems, to the more management-style problems, maybe, that is yeah. But not by definition. It doesn't have to be like that. It's just that's what people find useful. Yeah, in a way, mm -hmm. a lot of these labels in terms of the mathematical like subfields and things are, are not terribly helpful because they, they kind of they create barriers between these fields. This problem I studied in my PhD where... It's in pure uh, enumerative combinatorics trying to count these types of matrices. Really neat problem, actually, because a whole other series of conversations. And the, the most elegant proof that came for this conjecture came from, from uh, statistical mechanics, whatever that means, but it's a field of, of, of mathematical <laughs> physics, you know, and, and it's where like all these boundaries from fields not always are helpful, whereas really the techniques are the helpful ones and knowing when to apply them. The definition that we would use for the purpose of what, what we're talking about today in terms of applied mathematics are just without necessarily going to an incredibly high level of mathematics where you're talking about the stuff that they do at CERN that is certainly applied. There's some very uh, low-hanging fruit. I don't know if that's the right word. Low-hanging fruit of yeah, where yeah. mathematics can like, very like day -to -day much- day-to-day problems. Yeah. Exactly. Day-to-day. -day. And it's where you, you take these ideas of, you know, in, in high school where you're told, oh, matrices are important. Because computers can do mathematics really quickly with them, but you don't do it with a computer. So, you know, who cares, right? But yeah, actually exactly. with a matrix, you can they, they really They tell you it's important for computers and then you, yeah, then you proceed to do it by hand for the next two weeks. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. <laughs> two weeks if you're lucky, yeah. <laughs> I wish there was some, yeah, there is yeah. some value to that, but yeah, exactly. You're like, well, I could tell you whether this uh, matrix is singular or not, but but I have no idea why I would do that, right? So this is sort of the the next step. Like, well, what would you, if you had that knowledge, that kind of knowledge, what would you do with it? Like, what kind of problems could you answer? And some of the examples that you all cover in this book that we're going to highlight a little bit are things like, uh, if you have two businesses that are competing, what choices might they make? Or if, no, I know this is extremely theoretical and it's never going to happen, but what if there was like a pandemic and there were people <laughs> who were sick. Probably not that funny, but yes. <laughs> we, we, we needed to make weird trade-offs about society. Like, should we shut everybody in a basement? Should we make them behave in different ways? What's the, the cost versus benefit analysis? And, and those kinds of things, right? These things that, can, without needing too much high-level mathematics, you can describe them mathematically relatively simply. And then just with a little bit of code, yes. you can really do cool stuff with it. This doesn't take much code, you know, and that's that's where Python really comes in. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that we'll see throughout here is there's a bunch of different examples across these different areas of math and these different types of problems in different libraries that apply to solving them. But the thing that's cool is every one of those solutions fits within a couple of pages on the long ones, right? Yeah. For our Jupyter notebooks that have the solutions plus have some of the output of the answer, right? Like yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not a ton of code, is it? No. Oh, exactly. And and that's this kind of touches on on something else that we were gonna talk about is the idea that a lot of the time when these things are taught, they're taught with 
specific pieces of software, mostly commercial pieces of software. Yeah. Yeah. Then the, the topic itself is kind of not separated from the software used to attack the topic. We, we often go into meetings with industrial partners for research products and they, they talk about, you know, the tool as opposed to the idea. And that's a pity because that makes the idea much more complicated than it is because all of a sudden you have to take apart this really complex idea. But often with open source software or with, with Python and R, which are the two examples that, that we've used, it's like three lines of code to to find out the effect of a pandemic yeah. or, or, yeah. or other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I also think it demystifies things a little bit because if what you do is you go to some expensive, polished piece of software like Maple or something, and you can say, you say, well, I could ask this expensive, complex, huge piece of software a question and it can magically give me the answer. Yeah. It's great that you get the answer and it's great that you know you have this very fancy tool, but it doesn't necessarily reveal a ton of understanding because of it, right? An idea that's beginning to form in my head, I was just saying this to, to Darren, and I just, I haven't fully formed. I think there's a, a blog post that no one's going to read that I want to write one day about, you know, the ethics of it, about teaching these these yeah. fancy commercial software. It's why these great companies give out these the educational software is is that mm-hmm. is that they immediately have lots of users of of the software that don't know how to use anything else and and i, I wonder if ethically as educators if, if if that's okay i think we should make more of an effort to to separate the concept from the software and i was kind of like saying like i don't think we should teach any commercial software Darren, you made a good point when you're chatting i don't really have a problem with teaching a particular so- topic through commercial software as long as we teach it in a separated way so that you know, once you've formulated the concepts and the ideas mathematically, you can use whatever software you want. In the classroom, we happen to have this expensive license, we're gonna use this. But outside of the classroom, there are other things you can use. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple aspects here. One, Vince, you spoke about the ethics of it. Is it the right thing to do to basically reinforce this loop? Exactly, exactly. That entrenches some of these. The other part is, if you're in the UK, or if you're in the US and you say to your student, probably especially if you're in the US, they're used to getting paid so much. I just paid for both my daughters to go through college. So I'm aware that that here you pay a lot for the actual tuition, but many places you'll say to students, what is it in the UK? Is there, how is college, what's the affordability? I know in like Germany and other places, but don't know it that well there. It's a touchy subject <laughs> in, <laughs> in that tuition fees have just come in. And so Cost of universities here are equivalents, not far off to in-state tuition in public universities in the United States. I think they're, they're Interesting. Um, okay. not, not far off. But then that we get to charge, I'm saying we, uh, <laughs> very, very not talking about me, but we get to charge whatever we want uh, to a certain extent to people from the European Union and then even more to people from outside of that. Actually, I don't even know if that's true about the European Union because of recent events anymore. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, the yeah. Week, they, 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 okay. there's a cost. Well, <laughs> sure. Okay. So going back though, my my uh, point about the ethics was it's one thing to be in the US or, or places in Europe where we have a decent amount of money. It's another to say to somebody, you have to pay $500 for this yeah. software to learn the subject, right? Where 500 US dollars might be the yearly income for an yeah. employed person and their student. It seems like there's a lot of a lot of good would be done by building up maybe the missing gaps that force or encourage people to go to this commercial software, building that up rather in the form of SciPy libraries yep. and the data, the Python data science stack 
yep, in general. Abs- right? Absolutely. So that it's it's free, open source, and all those things. I think that would apply for all subjects. I think really close to to what we're talking about here is with with mathematics. I think it's really frustrating because I maybe I'm you know thinking too purely now, but uh, and I mean pure of heart, not pure mathematics. In terms of like mathematics mm-hmm. is just such a clean and minimalistic subject. You know, you need a pen and a paper yeah. to, to do it. And if all of a sudden we're teaching people to use a pen and paper to do mathematics and saying like, oh, but you can only do it with a pen made by a BIC. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. and don't worry, BIC has given us the all this free pen. pen. Is the only one. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> right? And then, and then once you graduate, if you want to write down this idea again, you have to use a big pen, but you have to pay for it yourself. And I really do think <laughs> mathematics, the evolution of mathematics and a lot of science, I would argue, is is into computing, right? Is into getting computers to do it. And that extension of using the pen now is to use is to use code. And and yeah, it's for me at least, I think one of the important things is that separation of mathematical concepts to software. Because it's a lot less of a problem, but there's still a problem going. The only way you can do this is by using free open software. Yeah. There are some places, unfortunately, that are not allowed to use open software because they think there's security problems and stuff. So if you've only taught open software, then certain, like the NHS, for example, I know they discourage using open software. So maybe you think then think, oh, I can't do this maths thing anymore. But if you've separated the concept from the software, at least you know the concept and you know you've got choices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think that's very true. Separating the concept from the software is key where possible. And I, I think perhaps we don't always do a good job of that. And here I am speaking as an industry. I think sometimes we often, like I've been to conversations where people have said, I need to use MATLAB. Can you help me with MATLAB? And it turned out they wanted to know how to numerically solve a differential equation. They, they didn't want to do MATLAB. They just wanted to solve a numeric equation. They right. just did not know <laughs> that that's what they were doing. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by the Compiler Podcast from Red Hat. Just like you, I'm a big fan of podcasts, and I'm happy to share a new one from a highly respected and open source company, Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. With more and more of us working from home, it's important to keep our human connection with technology. With Compiler, you'll do just that. The Compiler podcast unravels industry topics, trends, and things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with people who know it best. These conversations include answering big questions like, what is technical debt? What are hiring managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get started in open source? I was a guest on Red Hat's previous podcast, Command Line Heroes, and Compiler follows along in that excellent and polished style we came to expect from that show. I just listened to episode 12 of Compiler, How Should We Handle Failure? I really valued their conversation about making space for developers to fail so that they can learn and grow without fear of making mistakes or taking down the production website. It's a conversation we can all relate to, I'm sure. Listen to an episode of Compiler by visiting talkpython.fm slash compiler. The link is in your podcast player's show notes. You can listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Pocket Cast, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And yes, of course, you could subscribe by just searching for it in your podcast player, but do so by following talkpython.fm slash compiler so that they know that you came from TalkPython to me. My thanks to the Compiler Podcast for keeping this podcast going strong. We can dive into dive into the, the applied math aspects, but I think one other final thing on this is I feel like professors, especially as they get older, they've taught a certain way with a certain set of tools for 20 years. And you know what? That, that course they wrote, 
they already have the materials and the exercises and all of that. And to the idea of saying, well, we're going to now throw out this and like grab some new open source library. I mean, there's 350,000 libraries on PyPI and they're always changing and churning and something new is coming along. And it's maybe a lot to ask, but also maybe not too much to ask to, to say, look, you should keep up with these things. And if there's a, yeah, a yeah. new way to present it to your students, not because even some of the ethics stuffs, but you might be doing a disservice to your student to say, look, the only way that you can solve these problems is with, say, Fortran, or the only way you can do it is with a $2,000 toolbox extension to MATLAB. That's the way that you have to go to solve this. And here's this you know, super yeah, well-respected yeah. professor telling you that's how you do it. Well, that's not actually how you do it. That's how they've done it for 20 years. Yeah. I'm, and so there's a, a lot of inertia yeah. there, right? I'm really new at being a lecturer, so maybe I'm being really naive here, but <laughs> it is an effort to keep up with all this stuff. But that's our job. Our job is to keep up with the latest maths. Anyway, yeah. if I was still use, if in 30 years' time I was still using the same maths as I'm using today, I wouldn't be doing my job properly. So why would why is the same yeah. true with software? I think it actually frankly comes back to ethics in that, you know, it's it's unethical to not make the effort to update your training. And if we were talking about doctors and surgeons, they do need to learn new things as the science evolves. And I, I think it could probably with, with lecturers, professors, higher education, it, it comes back to that dichotomy between research and teaching and, and how teaching is viewed. So, but yes, absolutely. Yep. I think, you know, in, in a way I would be disappointed if at the end of my career, I'm still teaching Python. In a way, I'll still by now. <laughs> Not 2020 Python, but, you know, 2050 Python or whatever absolutely, it is, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All Pythons are, you know, I've started teaching Python too. Or Python plus plus. I have to figure out how to teach both <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, sorry, you cut you off. So you started teaching Python two, and then now you've you've moved on. And then on I had to, to figure the, out how to more deal things. with Python yeah. two and three, and now I just teach three. And yeah, yeah. That's I can't believe that transition took so long. But well, there it is. <laughs> Let's dive into some of the problems, and we're gonna more specifically. I'm going to take this book that you all created and use it to sort of guide our exploration of both some of these problems, how we might solve them with Python and some of the libraries that make it possible. I guess one of the things that struck me about that journey is that there's not that many external packages that are required. It's, it's not like, well, this one takes 10 to solve this problem. This one takes these complex, these five, if you put them together just right, you get the answer. So that'll be fun. But you know, tell us a, a bit about this book, Applied Mathematics with Open Source Software. So publisher, this is an academic publisher, which amongst other things means the book is really too expensive, but uh, they often just send out emails to people saying, you know, hey, could you write a, a book? It's not necessarily a source of flattery, <laughs> but, you know, got one of these emails and, and Garrett actually had just given a talk at PyCon UK. I don't know if you want to say a little bit about the talk you gave. Yeah. It was very much a precursor to this book where I had given an introduction to the field of operational research, which is how we label this certain type of applied mathematics and all the different problems that could occur. And I think the title of the talk was, there's a library for that, because every sort of problem that we <laughs> could come up with, you could pip install a library and in a function or two solve the problem, which was a neat little, uh -huh. oh, there it is. It's a neat little- That's it. Uh, yeah, is yeah. this it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah, yeah. I'll link to it, yeah. If I, if I could just interrupt, the call for proposals for PyCon UK closes on Saturday. So if you're if you're thinking of <laughs> talking, please submit a talk. <laughs> so yeah, and, uh, and it was just really neat that we had these like what we call standard problems. It was essentially our postgraduate MSE course that we teach, but instead of teaching the maths, there was one or two Python functions that solved it for you. And then, yeah, that right. eventually 
evolved into this book where instead of each little topic being a couple of functions, we filled out chapters on some of the theory and again, tried to separate the maths and the programming, um, emphasizing that by introducing another language, which was R. Um, to show that you can do it in two different ways and the software is independent uh-huh. of the problem. I think you and I described it because every now and then as we were writing the book, we kind of stop and go, wait, who's the book for? You know, and, and as we were like making decisions about how exactly to do something, we're like, wait, who's the book for? And I won't necessarily, well, maybe we should talk about that. But I think we've kind of written a book that's meant to be useful to people wanting to get started either with the mathematical field problem or with how to actually do it with the code. And so every chapter has got the same kind of structure that describes a problem. Then it, it describes the basics ideas between behind the theory of the problem or the mathematical tools, the theory behind the mathematical tools. But again, not going into too much depth, kind of what I said before about you don't need to understand all of Newton and Leibniz's calculus to be able to kind of <laughs> predict the outcome of a, of a pandemic. And then, and then it just solves the problem. The original problem, it solves it in two separate ways, the R and the Py, uh, using R and Python. And the final kind of section in every chapter is pointing at a bunch of literature on it, which we thought would be useful. Yeah, and we're more broadly, you might be able to, these types of uh, problems appear and, yeah. and what, what you might be able to do with it, yeah. But the really cool stuff with the publisher is that we had an ongoing kind of conversation before the start. And Garrett and I were both like, well, the book has to be open. They've agreed like all... Oh, there's not a PDF floating around online of the book, but all the source files are there. So all the LaTeX files are there. There's all the Jupyter notebooks are there with the code. We haven't quite gotten all the R Markdown files up yet, but they are theoretically all there. <laughs> and so the book is 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 very open, which, which we're happy about. Yeah, that's great. It is very shiny new. It still has that new book smell. It was released just <laughs> almost exactly a month ago, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Keep on saying I'm going to have Garrett over to celebrate, but we don't get around to doing that. But <laughs> I had to sign a copy for my nan. <laughs> oh, nice. That's very sweet. <laughs> so nice. <laughs> All right. Now, before we dive into the various problems in the Python side, while we're still kind of talking a little bit high level, this is one of the interesting aspects here is the Python and R aspect. So when you go through each chapter, which is, I think I agree with you that it's pretty approachable, even if you don't have a... You don't have to have like a master's in math or specialize in that area for it to make sense. It doesn't have, I think if that's you don't our really first want to see a ton of formulas. Yeah, it's not super intense. I think that's our first official review, Michael. Pretty approachable. It's fantastic to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, my math, uh, while I said uh, a ton of it is highly rusted, it was pretty approachable for me. So there's that. But maybe just talk about putting R and Python side by side for solving a, a set of different problems. What what are some of the takeaways either of you got from that? One thing we wanted to do here, because we would, well, I would certainly describe myself as a as a Python person, non-R person. I know R, I write R, I've written a book in R, but I would certainly describe myself as a Python person in that. If you're going to sit down and write something, you would pick Python first. I would probably. pick Python, exactly. Okay. But also, you know, I'm, I'm embedded in the Python community. I listen to some good Python podcasts. I'm a Python <laughs> person and I can look at some Python code and the joyous, that looks very Pythonic, right? I can, I, can, I can tell you that. And so we were kind of aware that we didn't want to translate the Python to R when we were writing this. We wanted to you know, write this as close to our people as, as we could. I don't know if we managed that, but that was something as well that we were aware of. It's not just translating mm-hmm. languages. In Python, yeah, in Python, we have the word Pythonic for idiomatic Python. Do you all know, is there a word for that in R? 
Or is it just I, idiomatic R? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't either. Yeah, you're right. You were going to say something. Jump in here. So I was going to say, like, as we were writing the book, we noticed that there were certain problems which the R and the Python lined up exactly, not from design, just from if we were going to approach these independently, it is ex- pretty much exactly the same way to solve it. There were some problems where we had to reformulate the mathematics because the way to do it in R was so different to the way you do it in Python. That doesn't mean the math's changed. We just had to reformulate it, recommunicate it so that we could write it down in R. And then there were some problems again, where we had to use different mathematics to solve it in Python and R because of the availability of libraries and stuff. I thought that was really, really neat. And I think that um, emphasizes again, the separation of concept to software because sometimes you did have to do very different things in different softwares. My favorite chapter on this is the one that that is your specialty, Darren, the discrete event simulation chapter, where I forget the name of the two theoretic ideas about discrete event simulation, a uh, process based on what the other one? Yeah. So there's pro- process based and there's the event scheduling approach. There's two different ways of approaching discrete event simulation and the standard library in R to do it is process-based and I don't want to call it the way to do it in Python, but the way we've said in Python to do it is by using the Q library, yeah. CIW library. The only way, the only reason Garrett doesn't want to say it's the way to do it in Python is because it's using his library, the library that he's, he's the maintainer of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Both those libraries, I'm pretty sure that underneath, I well, I know how Q works underneath, but the SIMA, which is the R version, I'm pretty sure underneath they work very, very similarly. There's not many ways you could do different ways of discrete event simulation, but the way you formulate the problem is very different. And going through that in the book and going in Python, you have to take a, like an overhead worldview where you look at the system, whereas in R, you have to take a sort of, you have to put yourself mind in the, sorry, put yourself in the mind of the customer and go, what is the customer doing right now? Rather than from a systems point of view in order to formulate the problem before you could just then go and solve it. I just thought it was very, very interesting that the way to do it in each language was so different. And yet probably underneath it's doing exactly the same thing. You get the same answers out. You just got to formulate it from it. Yeah. I think that's such a nice example where diversity, and I'm using diversity from the, the way that languages do things. I think that's the best chapter in the book, frankly. I think that's the best chapter in the book because you not only do things differently from a programming point of view, but because you do things differently from a programming point of view, the theoretic discussion allows you to kind of, yeah, give, give a really good understanding of these two ways of doing it. Uh, yeah. yeah so something maybe, else that's kind of worth problem. mentioning about the Python and R bit, I don't know if this is a terrible address, but I like tests. I don't like trusting in any code. I like writing tests all the time. And we came to this media thing that we wanted the, the book to be tested. We wanted to know the code was correct in the book, but we wanted to have these these two different languages. And we didn't want to kind of use the standard doc test notation for the Python. And then we wanted to find something that would work for the R, et cetera. So we, we actually wrote a little language agnostic doc tester that basically runs through and, and tests all the code in the book for us. And theoretically, when we write the second edition and we add Julia as well, it will be able to handle that. <laughs> yeah, I guess Julia is another option that could have yeah. possibly shown up in here. Pretty interesting. I guess it's worth pulling this up. It's probably worth pulling up the Stack Overflow friends <laughs> and you're putting those in there yeah right so we have r we've got i don't know where these all lie right now but i would imagine that the graph 
the graph looks a little bit different across these. Just for people listening, I would say you know, R is certainly growing. It's actually growing pretty healthily compared yeah. to many, many programming languages. And it's it's not going crazy, but it's going across. And you've got Python, which if anyone's looked in the last couple of years, has just done insane stuff in terms of popularity <laughs> over there. So there's that. And the Julia is, it's, I don't know, I can't really read it. It's, you know, like point... Not quite the same scale. 0.1%. Versus, say, like 2% for Julia, uh, for R, excuse me, and then for 16% for Python. There is something to be considered about choosing not just a language, because the language has a cool way of doing async or its generators are beautiful, but choosing a language for its ecosystem as well. Yeah. And but, that's where it touches yeah. on this here, right? But, but also for the community that's already there, I think, yeah, at least in the area of mathematics that me and Vince are in, I think... R and Python are quite prevalent, but they're also used in different... Maybe, maybe they're peers there, right? Yeah. yeah. More, a little closer than this would show. I think they're also used in different ways. Would you agree, Vince? I would say Python's very... Because of PyPy, things like out of the box, there's one library to do this, and it's the way to do it. Whereas with R, people tend to write their own stuff and then upload it to Cran. Yeah, yeah. So you might get lots and lots of different ways of doing the same thing, but each one might specialize slightly in a different way. Whereas R, with, sorry, whereas with Python, I feel like there's one library that does it really, really well. I think these people just use the ecosystems in different ways. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by the Python at Scale Summit. The Python at Scale Summit is a conference to highlight innovative big data solutions for Python developers and enterprises. You'll learn about trends in the Python big data ecosystem, share stories about implementing solutions, find out about new innovations, and connect with other data scientists using Python. The Python at Scale Summit will be a hybrid conference with talks, workshops, and training. Of course, there will be networking and social events to connect with other Python professionals too. Come hear speakers like Matt Rockland from Coiled, Brian Granger from AWS, and many others from amazing organizations such as NASA, Capital One, and BCG. Get back together with your peers and learn how they're scaling their computation and data analysis using Python and the data science stack. Register at talkpython.fm slash python dash at dash scale. When you visit the link, be sure to use the code TALKPYTHON, all caps, to get 15% off your tickets. That's code TALKPYTHON at talkpython.fm slash python at scale. The link's in your podcast player's show notes. Thanks to the summit for supporting the podcast. Yeah, both those two things are often talked as as strengths of either library, right? The fact that Python has that one way to do things, and then the seven different ways to do string formatting conversation comes up. But um, and then <laughs> then the fact that R is kind of like closer to the science. I don't know if that's even accurate, but that's the the feeling I, I, I guess is also a strength, right? Yeah, the reason there's lots and lots okay. of libraries to do the same thing is because they've each specialized in something mm -hmm. which a new academic has just written a paper on, and that's why there's lots of different ways of doing it. Yeah, All right, sure, and maybe you know, like uh, out in the audience. The ninja says R is really powerful uh, when it comes to things like analytics and so on, right? So maybe there's there's certain areas where yeah. you know there, there's the libraries you can pick that are definitely better. Okay, now we talked about the book. The book also, as you pointed out, has an an open version mm -hmm. where well, you can find it on GitHub, which obviously we'll link to. And in here for each one of these, you've got some examples, which are basically the at least for the Python side, the Jupyter Notebook yeah. uh, examples. Here. So I thought maybe we could sort of talk through a little bit. What is the problem? 
and then well, maybe really first quick, quickly introduce what this this area is. Cool. And then what we can then talk about the problem, the example problem you put out there and some of the libraries and techniques there. Sure. So the chapter two, which you're, you're looking at right there, uh, is, a, is about a, a mathematical idea called, a mathematical concept called the Markov chain. So it's this probability model that you loosely go that you're, you, a, as the, the system go, model changes over time, the system is in a particular state. And then, and then you go with with a given probability of being in that state to another state. And you can go around like that. That's not the best explanation I've ever given. I've, I've explained that many times. And I, that's probably one of my worst, <laughs> my worst explanations. But market change can be used to model queues. And there's a whole a field of mathematics called queuing theory. And that is often used as a very applied problem. And so the problem we got here is imagine you've got a barber. Uh, the barber has kind of two decisions, how many chairs they have in uh, to cut hair in and how many chairs they have to keep uh, people waiting for a chair and and obviously that has an impact on on the queue right of how long people have to wait to get their hair cut and you can use markup chains to build up a model and find the probability of having to wait relatively simply i know garen's going yeah. to clean up what i just said <laughs> <laughs> no yeah so i think a mark the model then would be the set of states and the probabilities of going between each states from the state you're in and that can be written as a matrix. And the neat thing then is there's loads and loads of linear algebra techniques, which at this point you don't really need to know about, but there are linear algebra techniques, which stuff like NumPy can just do for you, which if you know which techniques to use, you know how to interpret that as a real life interpretation. So for example, there's one certain set of equations you can solve using that Markov chain, uh, sorry, using that matrix, which will give you the long run probabilities of being in each state. There's another certain linear algebraic technique, which will give you something else. And that's what this is. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. The problem is essentially comes down to solving a, a matrix equation, which you could write down and understand with basic mathematical knowledge. And then that can be solved. This goes back to what you're told in high school, that matrices are great because computers can do them fast, but then you never actually get to do that. You, you just write down equations, but it's just a, right. a call right. to NumPy's Linalge library. It can just solve it immediately for you. It's amazing. Yeah. So the problem here, the to make this applied or more um, operational, I guess, that you all put out there says you have a barbershop and the, the shop notices that there's a lot of customers who are, they come and the, the shop is full and the waiting room is full and people just leave. And I, you know, since COVID, I've just decided I'm cutting my own hair. I, I can't, it took too long to find a barber <laughs> or anything that worked. And then after that, I kind of figured it out. But there used to be this place I would go to and boy, did it need this problem. It would be, you would go there and be like an hour and a half wait and, um, you know, you just, you, all the time and you never knew. But so they would solve it by giving away free beer to people while they wait, which was nice. But this one wants to solve it more <laughs> in a more formal business way where they want to have people just wait less. So it says you have two barber chairs. There's room for four people in the waiting room. There's about 10 customers an hour and it takes about 15 minutes to serve a customer. How can we minimize or, or how can we change things so that we don't have customers leaving because they come in, see a full waiting room and, and take off, right? Instead of knocking down a wall and building a bigger waiting room and or spending a lot of money on an extra barber chair and just seeing the effect and maybe five years later trying the other way, you can just mathematically model this. And this is a good example of, I think, what we described as applied mathematics is that you can, you can answer these cool questions. So you could say, well, maybe we need a bigger waiting room or maybe we need more barber chairs or something like that, right? And then you can make that trade off. Yeah, so let me find the, this is the NumPy 
numpy.linalg <laughs> magic. And so basically you set it up so that you set up all these scenarios in these constraints and then you just say numpy, solve it, right? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Mathematically, you're, you write down this matrix A and another vector B and you're solving an equation AX equals B. Most of the code is just getting the matrix set up and the B set up. Actually, most of the code is the, is, is the doc strings. And then, and then, yeah, you just use the least squares. That's one of many ways you can do it. Least squares is actually getting an approximate solution to the linear, linear algebraic equation. And there's various reasons why that's a better idea than solving it directly. And yeah, it's just it's basically one line. I think one of the neat things about this then is all that maths you sort of learn in school or even first year university where you're doing sort of row um, operations and stuff. That's not the mathematics that matters here. The mathematics that matters is what is the matrix you need to do that to? And once you've done it, how do you interpret the result? That is the mathematics. It's not the actual <laughs> yeah. row operations that you spent so long doing in first year university. Yeah, that is a bit ironic. That's such a good point, Garen, because I think what is mathematics is an interesting question, right? And like, is it being able to differentiate a whole bunch of quadratics really fast? Or is it knowing which quadratic you need to differentiate, right? And and I, and I, I would argue that that it is it is that, you know, it's it's knowing what, really knowing what the problem is so that, okay, then the actual specific mathematical technique, well, who cares, right? So. Sure. Well, Vince, people so often say, oh, I'm never going to use that. I'm never going to do these things. Uh, I could do that with a calculator or I could do that. I think a lot of that might be slightly misplaced. No, I'm not going to say misplaced, but somewhat misplaced focus on some of these things, right? Like if you could say, well, spend a little time showing you how to differentiate, then we'll show you how to actually solve problems yeah. with that instead of just getting, you know, more and more complicated techniques that you can apply yeah, as yeah. integrations, more of a, a pick and choose, right? Like to find which thing applies, but still... You know, instead of going deep, 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 deep into that on the first year stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You had someone on the show a, a little while ago called Alan Downing. Yeah. He writes a lot of really great books. And I remember what he said on, on your show was about he likes to think of teaching these things in the other way that code allows you to do these things immediately. So instead of waiting through and waiting and be, and having to have faith that there's going to be use to it, you can, you can just flip that around, you know, and, and understand what it is. So I, I think there's also a lot of that in what we should be doing. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I totally agree. All right, wrap this one up. You were able to find that it would be better to increase the number of barbers by one than increase the waiting room capacity by two because I think the chance of the shop being full is like 23% if you had- Something like that off the top, yeah. Yeah, yeah, versus like 8%, those kinds of things. And those are really concrete numbers that you could go to a business and say- you know, you hired us to analyze these things. We gathered all the necessary information, like average time, you know, how much that might vary and those kinds of things. And here are your choices. And here are what are the rough expected outcomes. Like that's really, really valuable information. And I am very sure that <laughs> most barbershops, even chains don't do this kind of analysis. <laughs> Not enough linear algebra going on in barbershops. That's an interest. That's a bold claim. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and this question, so, so a lot of the research Darren and I do is within healthcare. So we, we work with hospitals solving essentially very similar problems to the one that we've just discussed. We were keen to avoid too much healthcare because that's what we do so much of. But yeah, this, this if you get rid of the idea of a barbershop, you talk about a ward, how many beds are on the ward, how big's the, the parking lot for ambulances to wait in, et cetera, et cetera. That, that becomes very important and very powerful and not, it does. not something you need to spend thousands of 
pounds or dollars on licenses for not you know the, the uh, not necessarily even have a huge understanding of of the underlying mathematics it's all right there it's all right there available to anyone yeah but there's way more at stake in a hospital and healthcare than there is for uh of course yeah a haircut yeah, yeah okay let's go on to the next one so the next topic is discrete events so i'll find my way over to that one and y'all introduce this one to discrete event simulation this sounds like this might be uh, somewhat in your wheelhouse, Grant. Yeah. So <laughs> I think discrete event simulation is probably, if you're used to programming, this is probably the one that probably makes the most sense because it's moving virtual things around the place, essentially. Um, so the question we're, answer we're asking here is very similar to the question we just answered with Markov chains. But sometimes things are too complicated to be able to formulate that correct matrix or the matrix doesn't quite work because the situation is a bit too complicated. But what we can do is build a virtual representation of our system and by sampling random numbers, we can move virtual people around our barbershop and look at what would happen, right? Um, just observe, collect data, crunch that data. And this is what discrete event simulation is. Um, it's building a virtual representation of the system using random numbers to play that virtual representation system and then collect some data about what just happened virtually. Okay, excellent. So this one, let me set the problem that you all laid out here. This is a bicycle repair shop and there's a, a set of gates or, or actions or <laughs> I guess events you might say <laughs> that it flows through. So a bike arrives randomly at a rate of 15 bikes per hour. They show up and they say, hey, there's something wrong with my bike. And the staff member looks at it and helps them. That takes about three minutes. But it turns out about 20% of the time, the bikes don't need repair. There's like, did you know that there's a thing to just twist here and tighten it? All right, go away. <laughs> you know, you're, you're fixed. You're, you're cured. But 80% of the time, there's something wrong, flat tire, broken chain, whatever. And that gets put into a place where they're waiting to work on it. And that takes about six minutes, right? And then you got to collect it back. The question is, I guess the difference that I see here is, there's not an uncertainty of whether or not you want a haircut when you show up at a barbershop. There's just the amount of time and, and where the people are and the actions they might take if it's too full. But here you may show up and you may need help or you may not need help and so on, right? So there's, is that the difference? That, uh, I suppose that is the difference between these two problems, but that's not the reason we would use simulation over Markov chains. The, in fact, okay. the, the, the situation we're looking at here could be formulated as a Markov chain. The difference... I see is that in this situation, you could have an infinite amount of bicycles in your bicycle shop. So if we were to formulate that as a Markov chain, we'd have an infinite matrix, which is not terrible to deal with, but you wouldn't be able to deal with it in the way we just did. Got it. Okay. Talking about the states that I did kind of awkwardly in the previous chapter, it's just how many people are in, in the shop. So there's three people in the shop. Well, there's a probability that the next thing that happens is four or the probability that the next thing that happens is two. So it's a a very straightforward set of states uh, that is finite, as Garen said. Here, there's two things to keep track of. There's the number of bikes being seen by waiting to be seen by the inspector, the number of bikes waiting to be seen by the repair shop. And that just immediately, the fact that now you've got these two dimensions that can change, just again adds to the complexity and the fact that it's an infinite amount of them. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So the reason we would use simulation for this is because it's a more complicated situation for a variety of reasons than what we had before. Um, it would take a really, really big, if not infinite matrix to be able to solve this. So 
why would we go to that effort when we can get quick, easy answers just by virtually playing the system? These two chapters are paired and, and, and actually there's this, all the chapters are paired in, in the book for the, the reason that they are kind of the two similar types of problems from opposite angles. And uh, correct me, Garrett, if you don't agree, but I, I think that the, the two opposite angles about numerical tractability, how much you can, you can do with a, an exact method, which is what the previous chapter was, versus a, a more approximative method. And it's not always easy to say exactly what you should use one or the other. Sometimes it's absolutely clear, but sometimes it's not. Um, but there are these pairs of chapters that kind of reflect that, you know, the size of the problem, for want of a better word. Very interesting. Okay, the, the fundamental Python bit here is the CIW, or you pronounce that Q? Yeah, I call that Q. <laughs> okay. CIW, Q, it's the Welsh word for a Q, Q-U-E-U-E. It's the Welsh word for that, and that's... That's why I called the library that. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. And so the idea is basically you state the problem in terms of the arrival rate of events, the inspection or, or the, the service distributions in terms of how those flow through there, uh, the number of things that can be servicing it and the routing and so on. And you create a network with the Q library and <laughs> then you could just ask it questions, right? You can tell it to run a simulation. You can run it for some amount of time, like eight seconds or so on. And it's it's interesting that it simulates it, that it doesn't exactly solve it, right? That's the point of simulation, no, not the point, but like one of the uses of simulation is that we can quite easily simulate something that's too complicated to solve exactly, or would take too long to solve exactly, but we can quite easily simulate it. The trade-off then is because a simulation is essentially streams of random numbers that we do things to, you could get extreme values, you could get flukes. So you lose accuracy, but you gain efficiency. Yeah. So the idea is you run it over and over and over again with some, with the randomness playing out there. And then you just say, well, what is the most common set of outcomes look like? Yeah, essentially that, yes. Yeah. Very cool. So what did we, what did we learn from this one? That uh, we could add an extra inspector at the front, or we could add an extra repairer and... Uh, what was the, the better outcome here? So we were measuring was the maximum amount of time a bicycle spends in the shop. We wanted to get bicycles out as quick as possible. So if we added an extra bicycle inspector, we would reduce our time, uh, maximum time in the shop by quite a lot. But if we added an extra repairer, we'd reduce it, but not quite so much. So we essentially found that the bottleneck was the inspection desk and not the repairing. How interesting. And I suspect... I don't know, maybe this is not true, but I feel like if I was a business, knowing that would not just help me hire the right person, but I think having an inspector type of person would be easier to get, right? You don't have to have as great of a skill set to actually be the mechanic that does the repairs. So like, that's really valuable as, as somebody who runs a bike shop. I will also throw out another statement here. It's probably true. I also suspect bike shops don't employ these techniques, but should. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they can now. <laughs> they can. Well, and they can now, honestly. Uh, I think... I believe larger companies probably would. Stuff like supermarkets and airports probably would have a team of people yeah. behind them doing this. But smaller shops, probably not. Yeah. Gosh, I'm trying to remember the name. Not always, right? Would be a, a little candid. I'd say to Gary, we certainly know of lots of examples of big entities, companies, things that make very expensive decisions without doing these sorts of 
investigations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned grocery stores and stuff. I had the folks from Kroger, which I think, if not is the largest, one of the largest chains in the U.S., they have a basically an analytics and data science right. subsidiary called 8451. They employ 200 data scientists who do R and Python. <laughs> you know, so that's awesome. That's not joking around in terms of you know where do the bananas go and yeah, yeah, yeah. those types of things, right? They, so you're right. The larger companies definitely definitely invest in that. It's the interesting thing about what is data science, right? Talking about data scientists, in that are they looking at historic data and identifying things? Uh, and I suspect that there's no answer to my question here. So I, I suspect different data scientists do different things. But when you share a data science department, that doesn't necessarily mean they're doing this type of work. It might be, absolutely sure. it might be, but yeah, they might, might be. also be diving into the data and understanding it, and observing as opposed to necessarily modeling possible. It could be AI, it could be AI and ML, it, it could be a data ETL, just bringing in data and just getting into system. Yeah, there's all these different aspects. I wonder more about the data science on when do I go from being somebody that uses, say, Python for computation to becoming a data science, right? When do I, Yeah, yeah, yeah. would you cross the boundary from being a mathematician or a biologist to becoming a data scientist that has some understanding of biology, for example. I would argue it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about what is an applied mathematician and, you know, at what point are these labels helpful and at what point are they not, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the audience, Pritam uh, says, yeah, data science is such a catch-all phrase right now. I would agree. Also a buzzword. So if you're looking for a job, so it's a good one. To <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go on to another one. We'll get through as many of these as, as we can and we have time for anyway. So those two problem areas were paired together. Yep. The next area that you focused on is, is fairly different with differential equations. So those two areas that we were just in is the book's got parts and there's two chapters in every part. And that was in the probabilistic modeling is what we'd call it. Modeling these probabilistic uh, mm. type situations. And here we're in the dynamical systems section. And so specifically here, we're looking at a problem where differential equations can be used. And we wrote, we started writing this book before the world changed, before COVID happened. <laughs> And I remember coming into our, our writing sessions. I have to say, I really enjoyed writing the book. I'm very glad to have it finished, but I enjoyed writing the book. And I, I said to Garrett, Garrett, do we need to change this chapter? Because this chapter, there's a disease going around. I think we call it a cold. Yeah, everyone's called a cold uh, in a small community. Yeah. Uh, there's a cost so to not being able to, to have work. a cold. <laughs> right? And there's a cost, <laughs> a, a financial cost associated with not being able to work. Uh, financial cost with a possible cure that would double the rate at which you get better from the, the cure. Is it worth, uh, from the cold, pardon me, is it worth financially to get this this cure was was the problem. And yeah, we were like, should we make this about COVID? You know, should, should we just essentially all the, all the graphs we spent so long looking at that were on the news all the time, you know, this is it. This is essentially the same, the same thing. Yeah. Should we make it about COVID? And we, we decided not to, didn't we, Garrett? We decided to just keep it somewhat abstract. But yeah, that's that's the problem here. And, and yeah. the model is is a, a textbook, for want of a, a better word, a textbook model that's often taught when you, you, you start learning about systems of differential equations called the SIR model. And the SIR model has a three, has a population in three groups, uh, susceptible people. Sorry, Vince, I think you're talking about a different chapter. I am talking about the wrong <laughs> chapter. Thank you, Garen. Thank you, Garrett. Sorry, I went off on one. Thank you. That's the next chapter. Okay. Uh, no, no, brilliant, Garrett. They're similar. Yeah, they're similar. Uh, Very this similar. One... This one we wrote, you can write down a differential equation 
that dictates uh, not a system, but just the number of people that are infected over time. And so you can write that down, that differential yeah. equation, you can get a solution for it. Sorry. Uh, thank you, Garen. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. This one actually uses an interesting library that I am just fascinated with. It's an awesome library, SimPy, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I just had the folks on back in May, not too long ago for this one. Andre and Aaron for this. And yeah. I did not expect this from Python because it's, I expected NumPy and the linear algebra type things, but not, you know, here is the integral of this solution of this uh, differential equation. And here are the steps that I took to get there. It is so neat. SimPy is an incredible library that just gives you so much of what mathematics is thought to have to be commercial in that you can have all your symbolic yes. stuff. So, you know, if you want to know what is X plus X, you don't need to tell the computer what value X has. It, it, with SimPy, the computer can just understand the concept that X is this mathematical idea. And it's incredible. And it's, uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic library. I think it was when I started teaching programming to our, our first year cohort, I actually taught Sage Math, and Sage Math is built on top of SimPy. But at some point, I decided to just teach with SimPy, and so that's what we use here. That's what we use here. We we build up the actual numeric solution for the differential equations. We we find the expression that if you put it into this differential equation, that would uh, be the solution. We get an exact solution here. It's pretty wild. You say the way you set it up. I mean, everything about SimPy is wild, but the way you set it up here is you say, I'm going to create some symbols like time t or constant alpha or so on, or initial conditions. And then you say, I'm going to have a function. You don't say what the function is. You just say there is a function yeah. <laughs> called i. And then what you define for the thing you're going to work with is you say sim.equation. And you say the equation is going to be given the derivative of this function and of t and t. And then it has this, this expression in there, negative. I guess that's probably the... You, what you're specifying here is this is the derivative, not the equation itself, which is exactly. negative alpha times i of t, right? This is one of those parts of SimPy that when I when we teach this to our first years, it allows us to help identify misunderstandings about the mathematics. I think programming can often help you understand mathematics better and, and likewise and, and vice versa. But uh, people often come to study mathematics and don't know the difference between a formula and an equation. And an equation has two sides. An equation has an equal side in the middle. And so what you're creating here is sim.equation, sim.eq takes two variables, a left-hand side and a right-hand side. That's actually the name of the parameters. So the left-hand side is the derivative of, of i, so it's saying that the, the speed at which the number of infected people changes over time, that's the left-hand side of your equation, is equal to, and then the right-hand side of your equation, some constant alpha minus some constant alpha, sorry, times the number. So the speed is related to the number. And that's that's really the relationship that defines differential equations. Right. And in this scenario, you can change the alpha, the rate of recovery by providing medicine or just letting people do their thing, you know? Naturally recover, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So in here, you say, you know, given these constants, we're going to, you know, get the equation and then you you solve it, you come up with the actual symbolic solution, which symbolic is always, solution. always blows yeah. my mind. You say <laughs> sim.desolve, like, does that solve the differential equation? I'm guessing you give it the equation and the, the, the initial conditions and stuff. And you're like, where the initial condition is, we've defined a function i. We didn't say what it is. 
<laughs> really. But we said at zero, it's the initial condition of like how many people are sick or whatever that turned out to be, which is just... All of which are symbols. So everything here is just an idea. Nothing's a number. Everything is just an idea. Or concept. Yeah, yeah. And we don't know anything about it. We just know that these are the, the, yeah. the constraints of the equation. And out it gives you, you, know, you get the solution and it's... it. There's an equation. Uh, let's see. I got to go further down. So, so that's it there. It says that it gives you the actual solution. And then you start plugging in like the numbers, the different conditions, and it give you the answers, right? Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. You plug in the numbers at the end. <laughs> so we get the cost if you were to purchase the cure would be 700 and the cost without purchasing the cure would be 500. It's just the overall costing into account productivity, offsetting all the impacts of similar type of decisions that it'd be, you know, governments all over the world would be making. And in this particular case, for this cold data is no, it, it is not worth getting the, the care. <laughs> Don't tell that to the people who are suffering with a fever. Or whatever. <laughs> it's a, it's okay. a cold. Yeah, yeah, it's a this, little... this is not like yeah, the common yeah, cold. cold. This is a cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we found this chapter really, really neat because when we started doing exactly the same thing, going, how do we solve this in R, we realized we had to use a completely different approach. How to is a bad phrase. We went looking at R for an an equivalent symbolic mathematics package in R. And there is one, but really it's a wrapper for Python's SymPy. And so we found ourselves <laughs> writing writing strings of Python that you pass to R that R passes to SymPy. And yeah, so, so sorry, yeah, I think this is your, your point now. That doesn't sound like really like solving it in R. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So then, yeah. So we we decided we're not. If we were just to solve this in R, how would you do it? And as there is no symbolic library, um, a library for doing symbolic mathematics in R, we solved it numerically, and that just shows like exactly the same problem. We get exactly the same answers out, but the bit in the middle, the solution steps, were completely different in both Python and R for those reasons, which I think is really neat. I think that mm, I agree. That shows that you are. You're concentrating on the problem rather than the solution steps. Absolutely. And what you've learned here is that uh, this function that expresses the cost of people being sick, I of T that we talked about is 100 for 100 people sick, E to the negative alpha of T, which is it's pretty awesome. I mean, there's never, a, there's almost always a reason to marvel at the, that the number E. Have you all read the book, E, the story of a number? Have I mentioned this before? I don't think I have. No. Ah, oh, this this book is so good. It just goes back is to it the good? history, literally, of just oh yeah, yeah. It's I totally can recommend it. So people can check that out if they're E is a ridiculously cool number, right? In terms of I know pi gets all the press, but E is a ridiculously cool number. It's way cooler than pi. It's way it cooler is. than pi. <laughs> I mean, pi is cool, but it's if you, if you are into um, the change of anything, like differential equations, integrations, mm -hmm. like. It's, there's nothing like it. Innovation, I, I had not heard about that. Before. We are going uh, pretty long on time here, so I don't. I want to be respectful of your all time and, and everything. So maybe, uh, is there any other the problems or areas or libraries that you may, like, actually, let me, let me pick one here. Which chapter is uh, the game theory one? <laughs> Seven or nine? Let's see. <laughs> Wait for it. No, it's, it's Just nine. Just one before that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or yeah, no, it wasn't before that. Yeah, got it. Yep. The missing one is the linear programming one. All right, game theory. And the reason I want to pull this up is we talked about Q, Grant's library and his application. How about some NashPy? I mean, there was uh, John Nash won the Nobel Prize in economics for coming up with um, basically proving every in every game there was an equilibrium position, which is insane that that's true. In a 17-page PhD thesis, 
Yeah, incredible plants. <laughs> and not bad, not bad. Uh, so quick game theory, what is it? People yeah. maybe have heard of it, but they don't really know, or maybe they do know. I fumbled through the previous one, Gary, but probably makes sense for me to take this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, she should. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so game theory is the study of emergent interactions, of if you can kind of make some decisions, uh, describe a system at the lower level, how individuals interact, what happens at at the higher level. That that's the study of game theory. It's it's interactive decision making. A lot of the time you can think of decision making, for example, with that barbershop problem we discussed at the first stage of, well, if I had this many chairs or this much waiting room, what's the best thing for me? But there you're the only thing that your decision gets hit back with, if you think of a game of tennis, it's playing against a wall. It's playing against that probability. Game theory is just taking it to a slightly different dimension where you have two barbershops. What if you had two barbershops? And if one does this and the other does that, where are the customers going to go is the kind of idea. Right. They, both barbershops could say expand their waiting room. Both exactly. barbershops could hire more barbers. Or one could say, you know what, if you hire barbers, I'm getting a bigger waiting yeah. room. It's like like that trade-off. Yeah. Exactly. A very famous problem in, in game theory is the prisoner's dilemma. Two criminals are convicted and are separated and are questioned, and they can give evidence about the other prisoner. If they both stay quiet, they both give no evidence, the, the police won't have enough evidence to send them to prison for a very long time. They'll have to stay for a very short amount of time. Uh, so that's in their interest. But the police offer me a deal. And if I give evidence about Geraint, then I'll go free and Geraint will go to prison for far longer. Geraint gets offered the same deal. And that immediately creates a, a dilemma that we will both end up going to prison for a long time. We will both give evidence one about the other. And so... Uh, that's a very simple model. And that's actually what I came on the show a long time ago to talk about was that actual model and, and all the interesting stuff you could do with that. <laughs> but this game theoretic chapter is paired with another chapter called agent-based modeling. It's again, one of those points where labeling is interesting because for some agent-based modeling is a subset of game theory. No way it really matter. And, and so this chapter is all about emergent behavior. If we can define how decision makers in our system interact, what happens based on what they do, and they be plural, then what is the emergent behavior that you can measure? And so the, the game that we model in this chapter is there are two taxi firms that serve a, a community, again, a small, a small town, and they get to decide how many taxis they're going to have. And the town wants to incentivize these two taxi firms, essentially not to collude. They, they want to incentivize the taxi firms to give better service to the population. And so we create the game that allows the tax firms to decide how many taxis they're going to have, one, two, or three. And we build a little model that describes what happens if each uh, tax firm has one taxi, what happens if one has one, the other has two, what happens if one has one, the other has three, et cetera, et cetera. And then we obtain what is called the Nash equilibrium, which is a measure of if both tax firms know all this and act rationally, what would we expect? happen. It's just amazing how these outcomes, <laughs> it's just so clear, you know, if what's the likelihood of the other person doing or the other player participant taking this particular choice? And if, or if I take this choice, what are they most likely to do? And, you know, where are things going to settle in? It's really neat how this all sets up here. And let me find the section. Yeah. So what you do is you create a NumPy array for that represents one of the participants' outcomes and choices. And this one, I guess it's a 
what is this, a, a zero-sum game? Because you Not can... quite, not quite. It's not zero-sum, it's, it's symmetric. That's symmetric, okay. So you yeah. pass in the transpose of that, which says, here's the other player, they get basically the, the opposite of that. And then you just say Nash.game, and off you go, right? Yeah, Nash.game creates this game. It creates the game object, mm-hmm. and then the game object, the, the NatPy library has all sorts of different algorithms that could be used, and the one what we use is something called support integration, which is, is essentially the basic, by definition, idea. And the thing that we do do here is we say, okay, if we are the, the town hall trying to decide how to let these two tax firms compete, is we essentially are deciding not how we regulate them, but how we incentivize them. So what game should we make the two taxi firms play? And we do that by essentially saying, I guess we, we will tax you slightly less if you put on this amount of taxis or give you, give you an extra bonus if not. And the, the idea is to what is the smallest amount that the city hall has to kind of uh, guarantee to taxi firms to ensure that their rational behavior would be to give best service to the to the population? Um, so yeah, then it's just that those three lines you got on the screen right there. It's a little while loop where it just increments that offset. Yep, and you just say uh, get the equilibrium from it, and off it goes. Yeah, very nice. Okay, this is really great, and I guess it's it's worth pointing out. I, Heard of the guy? Yeah, that's me. I should say that the, the worked on this project. <laughs> so the Nashpy Library is my, myself and former undergraduate. Actually, they went on to start their PhD at, at the School of Mathematics. We started this library. It, it's grown quite nicely now. To be honest, probably the, the the part of the library I'm the most proud of is is the documentation. There's arguably a game theory textbook in there if anyone's interested, as well as all the functionality uh, for two player games. So. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it looks really great. I'm I'm a big fan of game theory. I think it it's very simple and yet it reveals pretty amazing answers and behaviors. So, you know, as opposed to something like partial differential equation, which can also reveal amazing answers, but the journey to get through it is extremely long versus this you could sit down in an afternoon and explain it to somebody, you know, like that p- prisoner's dilemma and so on. We could all kind of relate to a lot of what's happening there. You realize that you're you're aging, but I remember when I first started teaching uh, game theory. Everyone had seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, but if, uh, if mm-hmm. people listening and haven't, or are slightly interested in game theory and haven't seen A Beautiful Mind, I'd definitely recommend it. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a Hollywood movie, so have have the correct level of expectations. <laughs> it's a really nice movie. It's uh, Russell Crowe plays John Knapp. He, um, and it's more about not necessarily about the mathematics, but more about his life, which is incredibly interesting. And there's a couple of scenes in that movie. That arguably, if you just spend a little bit of time talking about a couple of seats of that movie, you can explain most of the game theory. Absolutely. All right. Well, I get the sense we're a tad bit over time, which is fine, but maybe we should should wrap it up here. There's a bunch of other areas that we haven't covered that are lots of fun that you go into. So yeah, very, very neat. But let's kind of wrap it up. Maybe uh, we'll ask you the final two questions. <laughs> I want to thank you for having us, but I know that you got these two questions coming. So like, oh, do I thank you now? Do I thank you later? But no, I just no, really no, do appreciate on, on, you no, having us on. I really do <laughs> we, appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're very welcome. It's been great to talk about it. All right. Now, uh, maybe a lightning round. Vince, if you're going to write some Python code, what editor are you using these days? I use Vim. I use Vim. Vim. Right on. Brent? I use Sublime. I really like having no features. I just like typing. <laughs> I don't want features. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Perfect. And then a notable PyPI package that you've come across that you're thinking is worth giving a shout out to? I was thinking about this before. Oh, and and the one I, I'm going to suggest is one called Python Ternary. You've got it uh, on the screen there. Yeah, Python Ternary is a library for plotting on uh, simplexes. So for, for plotting on triangles, want a better word, it's 
type of plots you draw a lot in evolutionary game theory, as well as other things, actually a collaborator on a project of mine that, that maintains this. And it's a very nice library for plotting different looking plots. I'm sure people think about, well, you could have these different plots on on triangle surfaces or, you know, like how much are you at, how close are each three different states or something like that. Yeah. Some of these are really amazing, like this M cherry one on there where it's got kind of crawling graphs through these triangle different states and so on. Yeah, it's I haven't seen anyone like that before. It's very cool. It's very cool. And it's built on top of Matplotlib. So it's essentially the the layer to, to do all the, the, the correct scaling and things like that is is there for you. So yeah, Python uh, uh, ternary is really cool. Yeah, fantastic. Grant? I think the library I would choose is it's called Traces. It's a small library that okay. I don't know if you've heard of before. I've I got the link here. Oh, oh, that one. Yeah. It does one thing and one thing good. It takes moving averages over irregular time intervals. And it was a problem which mm-hmm. I thought I had until I found this. And then it just made life easier. I liked it. Yeah, very cool. Okay. I think it's the next link. I think Fantastic. it's right. just below that. Just, this sorry. one right here. Not that one. Just, this one. There it is. There it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The uneven time series. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That looks great. It does one thing and one thing Fantastic. good. All right. Well, yeah. And... Yeah, that's often just what you need. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. Thank you so much. So people people are interested in your book or maybe exploring some of these problems. What do you tell them? Where do they go? If they're interested in the book, that's that's great. I think I'd, I'd more kind of emphasize just, just mathematics is so incredibly powerful and it really, really is. And it's it's kind of like, I, I, I feel that code, open source code, Python, kind of an order of, of, of how important each of those are, with mathematics really, really gives you superpowers. And so, you know, I'd encourage people to investigate those things and you can do amazing things with mathematics and, and a bit of code. Um, that'll be mine. I don't know what you think. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I, I second that. Um, I think, I think my main message is the maths and the software are separate things and they complement each other really, really well, but they are yeah. separate things. <laughs> they are separate things. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Like I said, uh, your book is on GitHub so people can go poke around some of the examples and some of the notebooks and see what we're talking about. Make it a little more concrete. Make it a little more applied, maybe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks Thank for you so sharing much. your work. It's been a lot of fun. No, thank, thank you, you so much, Michael. Yeah. Thank you. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Listen to an episode of Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with the people who know it best. Subscribe today by following talkpython.fm slash compiler. Sign up for the Python at Scale conference to connect with your data science colleagues and learn about trends in the Python big data ecosystem. Share stories about implementing solutions and find out about innovations in our space. Visit talkpython.fm slash python dash at dash scale. That's talkpython.fm slash python at scale. And use code talkpython to get 15% off your ticket. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. 
We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.